Our scripture is Exodus 20, verse 16. Exodus 20, verse 16. Tempting God. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This is the ninth commandment. It has been widely interpreted to mean that thou shalt at all times and under all circumstances tell the truth to all men who may ask anything of you. This is not the meaning of the commandment. Perhaps no other commandment of the ten is more misunderstood than the ninth. It is, in fact, one of the surest ways to get into a heated argument with many, many ministers, simply by calling attention to the true meaning of the ninth commandment. About twelve years ago, I encountered this kind of opposition with regard to the Ninth Commandment when I was speaking to a Christian school teachers conference in the state of Washington. The lectures were subsequently published as the book Intellectual Schizophrenia. In the course of that lecture, I dealt with Rahab of whom we are told in the book of Joshua. How Rahab in the city of Jericho, a Canaanite, a prostitute, hid the two spies when the king's men were seeking the lives of these two men of God. She lied about the whereabouts of the spies and saved their lives. God bless her and saved her. She and her family were the only ones who were delivered out of Jericho. Again, she is singled out for us in both Hebrews and in the book of James in the New Testament as the type of faith. In fact, in the epistle of James, the brother of our Lord, Abraham and Rahab are singled out as the two great persons of faith. And the act of Rahab in lying about the spies is singled out to testify to the faith. Well, through the centuries, many, many clergymen have spent long hours writing around that passage to prove that she was a terrible woman because she lied. And when God said that he was blessed for us, he didn't really mean what he said. Now, in the course of intellectual schizophrenia, I wrote, let me quote, Rahab had a choice to make. One, she could tell the truth and surrender the spies, two godly men, to death. Two, she could lie and save their lives. This is the kind of situation the moralist hates and refuses to accept. Either course involves some evil. However, the moralist seeks to deny it. The question is, which is the lesser of two evils? Our choices are rarely black and white ones. We rarely have the luxury of an absolute choice. 
But we do have a continual opportunity to make decisions in terms of an absolute faith, however gray the immediate situation. This faith Rahab had a half. Whether she lied or not was relatively unimportant as compared to the lives of two godly men. She lied and saved their lives. For this James singled her out together with Abraham as an instance of vital faith, a faith which was not mere opinion but a matter of life and action. Again, Hebrews 11.31 singled this same act as an instance of true faith. It is useless evasion to try to abstract something from the act as praiseworthy while condemning her for the lie and a violation of the unity of life. Rahab clearly lied. But her lie represented a moral choice as against sending two godly men to death. And for this she became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. For the moralist, it is important that he stand in his own self-righteousness, and Rahab's alternative is intolerable, because it makes some kind of sin inescapable at times. For the godly man who stands not in his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, his own purity is not the essence of the matter, but that God will be done. And God in this situation certainly will that the lives of the spies be saved, not that the individual come forth able to say, I never tell a lie. But we are told by the moralists, if Rahab had told the truth, God would have been bound to honor her integrity and to deliver her and the spies, and Rahab had an obligation to tell the truth, irrespective of the consequences. Several fallacies characteristic of moralism are involved here. Moral choice, it is held, involves a simple, uncomplicated, rational issue. Two, it is always a choice between absolute right and wrong. Three, the central issue is always the preservation of the individual's moral purity rather than a transcendent factor. Four, poetic justice is always operative. Virtue is always rescued and rewarded, and truth always triumphant. But this is not biblical Christianity, but 18th century deism with a strong brash of Spencer's very clean. Paul could say, echoing the psalmist, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That scripture affirms an ultimate triumph of the godly as differentiated from the moral is beyond question. But it does not affirm the concept of poetic justice. We cannot allow so radical a falsification of the faith to be projected onto scripture, unquote. Now, at that time, when I made that statement, of course, I was very savagely attacked at the conference by a minister, and I was told after the conference he was something of the modernist to boot. But he posed as quite a champion of scriptures that day. I don't feel I said everything that needed to be said, but I was on the right track at that time in what I had to say about Rahab. But it is interesting that ever since that time, and 12 years have passed, regularly some people have uh, used this passage and quoted it widely, like one minister in L.A. County, to prove that R.J. Rushduni is a man who believes in lying and is an unprincipled man. 
And this man also insists that God will bless and deliver a person who tells the truth at all times. So that if somebody came and demanded to know where his wife is, he should tell the truth and turn her over if the man wants to rape her, because God will somehow deliver her because he told the truth. This particular man is, incidentally, I think, morally unfit to be in the ministry. He is a notorious liar. He follows a Jesuitic practice of saying, no matter what he says, that uh, you are not telling the truth when you quote him on the most outrageous statement unless you can reproduce his statement word for word. And since this is impossible to do unless you carry around a tape recorder, he lies freely at all times. Now, the real question here, of course, is more than one of purpose. It is, does God require us by this commandment to tell the truth at all times? That's a very highly questionable proposition. We're going to spend a few months on this commandment to understand where God requires us to tell the truth without any hesitation, under every circumstance, and where we are not to tell the truth. Now, today we are to consider one kind of occasion where we are under no obligation to tell the truth. The commandment is very clear. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But this does not mean that our neighbor or our enemy is ever entitled to the truth from us on or any word about matters of no concern to them or of private concern only to us. In other words, some things are none of our neighbor's business. There are questions that nobody has a right to ask of us, and therefore no right to the truth. No enemy and no criminal has a right to knowledge from us which can be used to do us evil. The man invades your home with a gun. no right to tell him the truth of the whereabouts of your valuables or of your wife or children. A man who is trying to do evil to you, lawless work, has no right to the truth. To tell the truth under such circumstances is not a virtue but an act of moral cowardice. In wartime, we are under no obligation to tell the truth to an enemy. But there are some stupid creatures, and that's the only word for them, who have actually gone so far as to say that spying is wrong. Yes, well. And under such circumstances, espionage is necessary. 
there should be no deception even in wartime. In other words, don't camouflage yourself. And don't hide behind a tree if you're out in the woods doing battle. Stand out in the open so there's no deception about it. This isn't biblical religion, it's insanity. The commandment does not require us to tell the truth to anyone who is trying to do us evil. It is not a commandment for war. It is not a commandment for truth-telling to men who are outside the law. Had Rahab told the truth, she would have been. It is an evil to tell the truth to evil men and thereby enable them to expedite their evil. Asaph declared in Psalm 50, verse 18, When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partaker with the doctor. In other words, when you saw the commission of a crime and said nothing, you became an accessory after the fact. How much more so if you not only did nothing, but you told them how they could further their lawlessness? If you told them that's where they are hiding, if you tell the truth to a man about to commit evil, about to commit a crime, you are then a party to their offense. You are a participant in the crime of robbery, murder, rape, or what you will. A Christian is under an obligation to tell the truth to God at all times. And he is under obligation to tell the truth wherever normal communications exist. Normal communications do not mean invasion of privacy. There are some questions people have no right to ask of us. Thus, telling the truth does not mean telling the truth to a lawbreaker. It does not mean permitting any invasion of our privacy. It means bearing true witness to our neighbor in all situations of normal communication. Therefore, spying is legitimate in time of warfare. So our deceptive tactics in warfare. So are any devices to protect us from evil. After all, we have walls and we have rocks and we have other things to keep the truth of what we have from evil doers. To believe that we can tell the truth in situations comparable to that of Rahab, and that God will miraculously deliver us from the men whose lives are at stake is not only foolishness, but it's demonic theology. 
To hold that God must deliver us in those circumstances is to be guilty of the second temptation of Satan to our Lord. The temptations, as Matthew records them in the fourth chapter, have this critical one, tempting, testing God. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from the pinnacle of his temple, and he will send his angels to rescue thee, lest thy dash thy foot against the stone. And our Lord's answer was, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The word tempt there means to put to the test, to put on trial, to impose a requirement on him. In other words, no man can heedlessly expose himself to danger or anyone else and then say, okay, God, I've done my part. I told the truth. Now, you prevent my property from being robbed or my womenfolk from being raped because, after all, I preserve my purity. I haven't told a lie to this murderer of hate. That is tempting God. This is exactly what Satan was doing in the second temptation. No man can heedlessly expose two men to death as these people would have had Rahab to do on the pretext that his duty is to tell the truth irrespective of circumstances and that God has a duty to deliver. It was Satan, after all, who said from the beginning that man has a duty to test God. Yea, hath God said, put it to the test. The sad fact is, this is the kind of thing that has been taught. By and large, by most theologians for centuries. It's no wonder that the church has tended logically towards possibility. Consider, for example, what one very fine man, John Murray, a theologian, has taught with respect to Rahab. In answer to the question, what is truth, Murray stated, and I quote, our Lord's answer to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, points the direction in which we are to find the answer. We should bear in mind that the truth in the usage of John is not so much the true in contrast with the false or the real, in contrast with the fictitious. It is the absolute as contrasted with the relative, the ultimate as contrasted with the derived, the eternal as contrasted with the temple, the permanent as contrasted with the temporary, the complete in contrast with the partial, the substantial in contrast with the shadowy, unquote. All very good. He goes on to say that Jesus, in declaring that he is the truth, quote, is enunciating the astounding fact that he belongs to the ultimate, the eternal, the absolute, the underived, the complete, unquote. Then again, Murray says, in dealing with any concealment of truth, and I quote, it is quite true that the scripture warrants concealment of truth from those who have no claim upon it. We immediately recognize the justice of this. 
how intolerable life would be if we were under disclosure to disclose all the truth. And concealment is often an obligation which truth itself requires. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth a matter. Proverbs 11, 13. It is also true that men often forfeit their right to know the truth, and we are under no obligation to convey it to them, unquote. All this is excellent. But then Murray, when he comes to Rahab, caves in like so many have. He stated the case better than nine out of ten. Then he equivocates, and he says with respect to Rahab, and I quote, it should not go unnoticed that the New Testament scriptures which commend Rahab for her faith and works make allusion solely to the fact that she received the spies and sent them out another way. No question can be raised as to the propriety of these actions or of hiding the spies from the emissaries of the king of Jericho. And the approval of these actions does not logically or in terms of the analogy provided by scripture carry with it the approval of the specific untruth spoken to the king of Jericho. It is strange theology that will insist that the approval of her faith and works in receiving the spies and helping them to escape must embrace the approval of all actions associated with her praiseworthy conduct. Unquote. Now he calls it an untruth. Well, that's kind of evading. It was a lie. A terrible lie. But it was a good lie. It saved the lives of two men. And Murray's thinking here is that it, you can somehow take the act and say God blessed it. But then you have to say that somehow you're going to separate the act from the act. Now, how can we do this? He admits it was her lie that saved them, that God praised her and blessed her for it, but somehow he says we mustn't say that her lie was good, it was bad. And God, in spite of blessing her and commending her, somehow didn't like it. There's no evidence for that position. Again, there's another episode in Scripture, in the first chapter of Exodus. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had ordered that all Israelite babies be executed at first. The midwives had orders to report every birth. The midwives lied to the king. They said, by the time we get there, they've delivered the babies and taken care of them, so we don't know where they are. They lied. And we are told that God blessed them for them, made them rich and prosperous. But suddenly, when you turn to all the commentaries and the preachers of old and of today, they start damning those poor midwives. Somehow, when God blessed them, he didn't mean what he said. And again, Murray, a very superior theologian, indulges in the same nonsense. He writes, 
The apparent prevarication of the midwives of Egypt has been appealed to as warrant for untruth under proper conditions. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. And God dealt well with the midwives. The juxtaposition here might seem to carry the endorsement of the reply to Pharaoh. Let us grant, however, that the midwives did speak an untruth, and that their reply was really false. There is still no warrant to conclude that the untruth is unendorsed, far less that it is the untruth that is in view when we read, and God dealt well with the midwives. The midwives feared God in disobeying the king, and it is because they feared God that the Lord blessed them. It is not at all strange that their fear of God could have coexisted with moral infirmity. The case is simply that no warrant for untruth can be elicited elicited from this instance any more than in the cases of Jacob and Rahab, unquote. Now, of course, he calls it again an untruth and prevarication, and it was a lie. They lied. He admits that God blessed them, and it was because they feared God that they lied to the king. And as the scripture says, that God blessed them for that. But again, he wants to hold to the idea that you must tell the truth to anybody under any circumstances somehow. And the scripture clearly presents this as cause and effect. They feared God and lied to the king. And therefore God blessed them. Their fear of God was manifested precisely in the lie at the risk of their own lives to save God's covenant children. Their lie was not, Murray to the contrary, moral infirmity, but moral courage, just like Rahab's lie. The moral infirmity in the case is Murray's and his pupils. Pharaoh was at war with God and his people. He enslaved the Israelites, and now he was going to wipe them out by killing every child. And when a man is doing evil, is totally lawless as Pharaoh was, we are under no obligation to tell him the truth. But there's a long, long tradition of straining at gnats and swallowing camels here. St. Augustine was very hard on the midwives. And he said a person should tell the truth under any and every circumstances, even when it led to great evil, because God somehow was going to deliver the person. And he had quite a time explaining why God blessed them, the midwives and Rahab. Calvin also gave the midwives a very bad time. He said they should not only have told the truth, but then they should have given Pharaoh a testimony and witnessed to him about the Lord. Well, any time anyone could speak in Pharaoh's presence without consent, they would die. Moreover, it would have been immoral for them to have witnessed to Pharaoh if they had been permitted to do so. Our Lord said, Give not that which is holy unto God. 
neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rest. Carol Todd is among the few of the great theologians who defended the midwife. But he just did so in a sentence or two because he didn't want to take on so many great theologians. Now, Scripture does say that lying is hateful to God. Satan is spoken of as the father of lies. But we are also told that God put a lying spirit in the mouth of false prophets in order to deceive a false king. The truth-telling moralist makes truth-telling an absolute, a universal. But God alone is an absolute. Truth-telling is always in relationship to the absolute God and his love. Westminster Shorter Catechism at this point declares what is required in the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. What is forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Now, that's well stated. If we are not permitted to injure our neighbor's good name, how much less are we permitted to aid evil men, to steal his property, to rape his women, and to kill him? Truth-telling, then, is cowardice. It is a pagan concept which calls for truth-telling in these circumstances. It is related to the pagan doctrine of sanctification. We shall next week be considering the biblical doctrine of sanctification. But in paganism, the self-perfection of the individual is the religious ideal and purpose of sanctification. The perfect individual is his own ultimate. This goal is pursued, whether by the Sufis or the Buddhists, with no reference to God or his law order, often without any reference to other people. The ego, the self of the individual, is the entire world of pagan holiness. It is the perfection of the self which is the goal. The result is a concept of holiness and truth-telling which is abstract. That is, it is abstracted from reality. It is abstracted from the concrete situation. Abstract moralism is non-Christian. It is a non-Christian concept of truth-telling that asks us to tell the truth to our enemies and to love them. There are, in terms of biblical law, limitations on the right to tell the truth. 
It is a biblical doctrine, for example, that insists on the sanctity of confession to a pastor, on the privileged nature of communications to a doctor, that imposes a variety of hedges on our ability to tell the truth, but also says that there are circumstances where we are under strict obligation to tell the truth without hesitation. In the following weeks, we shall deal with the limitations on truth-telling as well as the very strict requirements on truth-telling in terms of God's law. Because it is important for us not to follow someone's abstract idea, thou shalt tell the truth at all times to all people under any and all circumstances, but the word of God, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And in terms of every subordinate law under this, the ninth commandment, our concept of truth visible, not taken. Let us pray. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast called us to members of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Make us ever mindful that Jesus Christ is the truth, and thy word is truth, that we might ever in obedience to thee walk in the way of truth and righteousness not in the ways of men. Prosper us in thy way. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. All right. This is not a case of the end of justifying the means. It simply says that where there is illegal activity or warfare, we are not under any obligation to tell the truth. Now, a subversive is working against an established law order. That's a different thing. We are under no obligation to tell him the truth. No, they cannot. Their activity is love. Then with regard to the census, since I haven't seen it, I don't know uh, yet what it asks, so I can't answer that question. Yes, you are next. The new morality holds the 
situation ethic. That is, you let the situation determine it. So that there is no law that governs morality. You govern it. We believe that truth-telling is under law, God's law, not our feeling in the situation. There's a world of difference, you see. Now, the uh, exponents of situation ethics superficially seem to agree here with Rahab, but actually what they're saying is Rahab and the midwives should not have moved in terms of the fear of God. They don't believe that was the real factor. What was in it for them? So, actually, they would have said, well, who has the most to offer for Rahab? Who has the most to offer to the midwives? And had they been in the circumstances, they would have said, Rahab, the king will reward you if you turn them over. There's a reward for them. And the midwives, Pharaoh is going to uh, pay you well if you report the whereabouts of our children. You see? Situation ethics thinks purely in terms of the person and his advantage. But we are interested in law. And the biblical law does not require us to tell the truth under any and all circumstances. And we'll see in the succeeding weeks, I've mentioned two areas, doctors and ministers, where it would be immoral to tell the truth. You are under no obligation to tell him the truth. There are cases, yes, right. Well, he may kid you anyway. Nowadays, that happens often enough. Some people have been beaten out of them. Uh, I would say you are under no obligation to tell him the truth. But if you feel finally it's beaten out of you or the risk is greater and he might leave you alone, you're not going to lose as much, that's up to you. You're going to lose something out of it. But if it if it is your money that he's after, okay, it's your loss. But if it's somebody else's life and property, I would say it's a sin. I'd say still, uh, it would be a sin. Because we are under no obligation to tell the truth, and we do not, we are at war with evil men. We must not surrender to them. Yes.
deal with that with respect to the court of law because in such a situation, God is the judge, the ultimate judge. So you do your duty irrespective of what they are, but we'll be coming to courtroom testimony later. Yes.
God is leaving in the picture in the trial by ordeal. It's a part of nature worship. But we will deal with uh, that subsequently. Uh, by the way, we're very happy to have Sylvia with us this morning. She's with us practically every week. But she just had a baby uh, this past week. In fact, last week when she was playing the organ, she began to have her first uh, labor pain. So we're very happy to welcome you and your firstborn son to our uh, meeting this morning. Yes.
fact that the Bible does not call for absolute truth-telling does not mean that it is, it justifies lying under normal circumstances. What it does require very strictly is where normal communications exist a standard of integrity. This is why when you have a truly Christian situation, you do have more integrity and honesty of speech. But today, on the one hand, they maintain this idea of an absolute truth, when in reality they live in terms of an absolute lie. I stated at the beginning, and I mean this very seriously, I found that by and large, with a few exceptions, that very commonly those who make an issue about how terrible it was for Rahab and the midwives to lie are not very trustworthy. They have a peculiar sense of truth. Like this one man who, whom I mentioned who feels he can make any kind of statement and tell you that he never made that statement even though there are two or three witnesses to it because, well, that isn't exactly what I said. which is a very common remark. In other words, you haven't reproduced what he said word for word although you've been very faithful to his meaning. You see, you end up with a pharisaic position. We'll be dealing with the various aspects of this, including the lie detectors. Why a Christian under no circumstances should have anything to do with a lie detector. It is very important to understand what it means to bear false witness and why certain invasions of your mind cannot be permitted, why they are intolerable, why it is biblical that we have the Fifth Amendment. Self-incrimination is forbidden. We have a great deal here in our legal tradition that has roots in the biblical law and we've lost any sense of the meaning of it. And today, the law is collapsing precisely because the biblical concept of true witness is lost. Well, our time is up and we will continue this next week and the week after and after and after.